Call me crazy, but I'm excited to talk about giving today. I've sat in church all my life, so I've heard the, oh my goodness, we're talking about money again. And uh, so I know it's something I don't tread lightly into, but, um, and it, it's um, just happenstance that we're having our annual budget meeting. I was actually going to preach this next week, but with Pastor Scott gone um, at, at his French memorial service, he asked me to do it this week. So um, I'm excited. My name is Chad Little. I serve on the elder board here at Big Sky Christian Fellowship. Um, and with that, let's, let's uh, launch in, Buck, buckle in. So, I, in preparation for this, I listened to four sermons online. It turns out tithing sermons are an hour long. I'm going to try to cut mine down, but every one was an hour long, but I, I sat through most of them. Um, it ran the gamut of, uh, there was a couple that really just said tithing. Tithing is just an Old Testament construct. We're under grace now, not under the law. We don't need to tithe. But then, ironically, they would end with, so we should be giving 20%. We should give me 30%, right? So, you kind of feel like, oh, good, we're, we're, out, we're, we're okay. And then they, they, up, they always raise the bar. Then there was the, the, the last one I listened to. He, he wasn't stern, but he was blunt when in the middle of the sermon he said, if you're not tithing, you're stealing. I was like, wow, okay, okay. So that was his big point. I, I ended up, what was so helpful about listening to those was that I disagreed with about half of what they were saying, but I agreed with about half what they were saying. So I give you permission, disagree, disagree. But I, I want to kind of walk us through some major concepts in the Bible that we should be wrestling with and thinking about as we think about this topic. So the, the title is Telling the Right Story, and it's because the way we live... The way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, our hobbies, they all tell a story about what we, what we uh, believe in, what we value, uh, what we trust, where our priorities are. And so in our giving, I think it tells a story um, of what we believe. So the best way to tell a story is to start at the beginning, right? In Genesis 1, we see a good God that we just sang about, who on day one, he, well, he, he brings order to chaos. That's the foundational concept of Genesis 1. And on day one, he separates the darkness from the light. And on day two, he separates the waters below from the waters above. On day three, he separates the land from the seas. And on day four, he begins to fill. He fills the, the, the space that he created on day one. On day five, he fills the water with the fish and the sky with the birds. And on day six, he fills the land with animals. And then the pinnacle of his creation, he creates humans. And it says in Genesis 1.27, that God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this is such a key verse in that story that humans are created special. They're different. We're not just animals. And there's a, a term here in Latin that's imago Dei. And that, that is Latin for image of God. I have found um, phrases like this and even learning some of the Hebrew words for, uh, for biblical concepts so helpful because they actually jar me in, out of familiarity. And they make me ask, what, what does this mean? So I, I, I was so happy when I learned that phrase, imago Dei, because then it started asking, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And so uh, the, it, there's several implications for imago Dei. Um, but I want to go through three. Fundamentally, at the core, this definitely means that every person 
has innate dignity and purpose. Um, if you are f looking at your outline, I do have some fill in the blanks here. So I think Leanne helped me out. I had tiny little blanks that I think are, are better now. So you don't have to write in the smallest script. Um, but there, we're going to have a few of those. So everybody, every human has innate dignity and purpose. There's just, there's no mistakes. I think that's uh, encapsulated in this idea of the, the image of God. Um, the second thing that I think it means is that we're managers of his creation. God created everything, and he, he didn't just do it so we could just enjoy it, but we're supposed to take care of things. Everything that he's given us is, is for us to manage. Now, the third thing that we're going to focus and spend some more time on as we look at giving today is that uh, we are made to reflect God's character. We are mirrors, and... and the problem with us being mirrors is that there's a few things that can go wrong. We can be out of angle a little bit. We can be warped, be a funhouse mirror, or we can get grime on us and get, get dirty, right? There's, there's so many ways we end up misrepresenting God. And so, but that doesn't take away this fundamental, fundamental aspect of image of God, that that's who we are, and that unfortunately we end up misrepresenting and misreflecting our God so often. So, next I want to look at covenants. So there's one of those things that we see in the Bible that God makes a, a relational agreement with his people um, that helps define who we are and, who, and what God will do. And I think it helps keep people on track so that they actually represent God well and reflect God well. Um, Sandra Richter, in her book, Epic of Eden, um, I highly recommend this. It's, it just leads you through the uh, Christian entry into the Old Testament is the subtitle. And in that book, she says, we all can remember five names, right? Oh, let me click. And, and she gives in this book just this outline of, of remembering the five names of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. These are the five big covenants that we find in the Old Testament. Um, one, one thing that I, I, I missed here, when we think about covenants, is um, when we look at our Bibles, we have it divided in the Christian Bible into two sections, right? The Old Testament and the New Testament. That word testament is, is um, really also translated as covenant. So you could say it's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the problem that I think we, when we use the word testament is that our, in our English minds, we think of uh, last will and testament, right? And so in that concept, if you think if there's an Old Testament and a New Testament, we think the new uh, makes all the old last will and testament certainly null and void so maybe when we get to new testament we start to think oh then the old testament doesn't matter anymore well with covenants covenants are different they're umbrellas that are over a certain group of people and just because there's a new covenant doesn't make any of the old covenants null and void so that's a concept i want to keep in mind and and we'll be talking more about um, specifically the the abraham covenant here coming up and why I think that that's still applicable. Um, so we've talked about the covenant with Adam, of which image of God is one of those core concepts. We're going to skip over Noah, and we're going to pause at Abraham. Now in Abraham, we read about a covenant with a that in Genesis 12, where God said he's going to bless, bless Abraham to be a blessing. In Genesis 12, 2 and 3, 
God says to Abraham, My heart's desire is to make you into a great nation, to bless you, to make your name great so that you may be a blessing. My desire is to bless those who bless you, but whoever curses you will I curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we see here that this is really focused on God saying that he wants Abraham to be a blessing, and that in all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Now the Apostle Paul picks this up in Galatians 3.8 when he says that the scriptures, foreseeing that, the good news, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the good news to Abraham in advance, saying, all the nations shall be blessed through you. So Paul is seeing that Jesus, through Mary, his mom being a descendant of Abraham, is the full, complete fulfillment of this promise that through Jesus all the nations are blessed in that um, he has come and sacrificed himself for everybody. It's not just a family-specific covenant that, that God was making with Abraham. However, I don't think that takes away from the basic truth of this covenant that God was really telling Abraham that I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you can bless the people around you. And Abraham is such a perfect um, candidate for this kind of covenant. Because if you read his story, he's just naturally hospitable and generous. He's a perfect example. And I think, in some sense, he, he understood Imago Dei that he was just a manager. So everything that God blessed him with, he was willing and ready to bless others with. So Abraham's life is a, a, an excellent lesson in generosity. So we've introduced Imago Dei, and we've talked about Abraham's understanding of that he was blessed to be a blessing. So let's fast forward 400 years from Abraham and look at how God makes another covenant with Abraham's descendants. In this one, we see that the people of Israel, a few generations later, now we have the 12 tribes of Israel, and we have Moses leading them out of Egypt as freed slaves, and they arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai. And now there's a new covenant that happens here, and this covers the people of Israel. Um, in, in Exodus 19, we see this where it's really laid out and, and spoken of as a covenant. And um, it says in Exodus 19, 3 through 5, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Say this to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you out to myself. Now then, if you listen closely to my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own treasure from among all the people, for all the earth is mine." So this is the beginning of the Sinai Covenant, also known as the Mosaic Law. Now, the Mosaic Law can traditionally be divided into 613 laws. And so what's so helpful, I found, is, is a division into three different categories of law. So as you're reading through Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, the laws can start to all blend together. But these three categories have been very helpful as I read through and look at the Mosaic Law. So the first category I'd like to look at is the priestly tabernacle or temple law. 
And this is just, what, what are the priests supposed to do? How are they supposed to offer the sacrifices? Uh, what are they supposed to wear? Um, um, so Leviticus 16 is a great example of this, where it talks about the Day of Atonement. And so it tells Aaron how he's supposed to approach everything, how, what his sons are supposed to be doing. So that would fit uh, neatly into this category of the temple law. The, the second category is the, uh, is the part of the law that pertains to being Jewish. So this might be kosher eating, celebrating Passover, circumcision, not mixing wool and linen. God, God gave uh, the people some laws that maybe we'd even scratch our heads and like, what, what, what is that? What is that law for? And, and so I would say this is the law that pertains to being Jewish. Now, I think you could make an argument, doesn't this all just pertain to being Jewish? And I would say, yeah, it does, all 613 laws. But this last category, I think, uh, is different. And it's the third category of the moral law. So for the moral law, for instance, in the, towards the end of the Ten Commandments, we see do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not bear false witness. So to me, these laws, these should apply to everybody, right? This is not just something that's a Jewish law. The moral law is how we should behave. And it's because the moral law, like we saw at the beginning, it reflects who our God is, right? So that is um, kind of where I wanted to, to look at uh, for, for the breaking down those 613 laws. Now, the question becomes, as we get to the middle of this message, is what about tithing? Where does tithing fit into this? What category would you put that under? So before we, we talk more about that, I have one more thing um, that I want to look at from Malachi. And this is a verse you'll hear often uh, during talks about giving. But it's a thousand years after that Sinai covenant. For, fast forward a thousand years, and you have Malachi bringing, confronting his people with this accusation. And he says, From the days of your ancestors, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Yet you say, how should we return? Will a man rob God? For you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In the tithe and the offering. You've been cursed with the curse, yet you keep robbing me, the whole nation. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Then, uh, then there will be food in my house. Now test me in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out blessing for you until no one is without enough. So we see here Malachi really approaching the people of Israel and saying, hey, there was this umbrella of covenant over you and you've totally stepped way outside of that umbrella. It says for generations you haven't been following this law in particular. And there's, if you read Malachi, there's other things that they get critiqued for. But God just says, come back under this covenant, this, this thing that I set up over you to reflect, so you would reflect me well. So, nuts and bolts of tithing. What is tithing? So first of all, tithing is 10%. When you hear the word tithe, it actually means a tenth. So, um, I, I hate to be the grammar police. Actually, I, I like being the grammar police. <laughs> but if you say, I tithe... 5% or I tithe 15%. You don't. So you can't tenth the 5%. You can't tenth, right? You, you give, if you give 5%, you give 5%. But if you tithe, you give 10%. 
Um, so that, that's, I think, a good uh, just thing to understand is tithing is 10%. Um, and that means that you're living off 90% of your income and you're giving 10%. Um, in the Old Testament, what was it for? It was to support the Levites. Now, the Levites were one of the tribes of Israel that weren't given a piece of land in the Promised Land. They were supposed to live in the cities all throughout the nation. And they were there to... Um, to represent God, well, we're going to get into that in a second, but the, the people were supposed to bring the produce and livestock to them because they didn't have land of their own, and so they were supposed to support that tribe. The role of the Levites, then, was to represent God to the people. The Levites were supposed to be experts in those 613 laws so they could explain um, what God expected of them. They were there to represent the people to God if the people had sinned. The Levites helped bring that to God and, and helped be a mediator in that sense. The people also um, were, were there to help people navigate atonement. Some of those sacrifices that God said, hey, if you sinned, you need to do X, Y, and Z, they're complicated, right? So they would help them navigate that process. And then the last thing that they were, were told to do is to di distribute resources to those in need. So it was expected that as people gave to the Levites, that the Levites would have excess, and then that would be spread around to the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, so that through that system that they'd always be able to help everyone in need. So that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts of what the tithe was in the Old, Old Testament. But what about today? So I am making the argument. I'm trying to be, make a persuasive argument. Again, I, um, if you want to disagree with this, I'd love to hear the thought um, because I'm still learning. I still could be wrong. But this is the way I see it, and this is my perspective, is that I think today, I think we should give 10%. And I think that that 10% is, in part, to support the church, to pay... Oh, we've moved forward too far. Uh, to support the church. So it is to pay salaries of pastors and administrators and to pay the rent for buildings. Um, but then there should be excess uh, left over so that the church is then giving to the community and supporting the ministries that we all agree that we want to support. To me, um, that just makes so much sense in that that reflects well upon God, right? That God's people are generous and giving. Um, and then where should I tithe? Oh, I keep going forward when it's still on this slide, don't I? Uh, where should I tie? Uh, this church is unique in that we have so many seasonal uh, residents. And so I, I would just say the simple solution is just tithe to the church that you are attending at the time. So if you're um, somewhere else for six months of the year, that's where you would tithe. If you're attending here for six months, you would tithe here. So um, the position that I take is that tithing fits into the category of moral law. And so we're moving back, back through that outline now, and we're going to go back through what we touched on uh, and just talk through those things a little bit more. And the reason I think that tithing fits into the moral law is that the moral law is incredible in how it reveals who our God is, and it reveals his character. So, for instance, we do not murder because our God is life. Our God is love, right? We don't commit adultery because our God is faithful. We don't bear false witness because our God is truth. So the moral law reveals who God is and it helps angle our mirrors correctly. It helps clean those mirrors off and unwarp them. So I, I would think, to me, it makes sense that giving then is we give because our God is generous. It's part of the moral law that just reflects who our God is. 
So that brings us back to the fact that God picked Abraham to represent him and chose Abraham's family to be blessed, to be a blessing. And the question then would come up, well, we aren't descendants of Abraham, right? So how would we fit under that covenant of Abraham? Well, thankfully, Paul, in Galatians and, and in Romans 4, um, he talks about this. Um, we're going to look back. We've already looked at Galatians 3.8, but now let's look at the verses surrounding uh, verse 8. So starting in verse 6 of Galatians 3, it says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, know then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. The scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the good news to Abraham in advance, saying, All the nations shall be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what Paul is saying here is that we have been adopted into the family of Abraham. And what's so amazing about that, and, and especially Romans 4, I, I, I saw that too late, how, how, how well Romans 4 fit into this, this paradigm that I was looking through. Um, but Abraham is the father of, of us. If we, have not, if we don't have any Jewish heritage in this room, I assume we're all Gentiles. Um, but that it, it says, because Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised, and that, that comes in Genesis 17 when God says, they need to be circumcised, and now that family is set apart as the Jewish people. So Abraham kind of has a foot in both, in both doors, in a sense. And so we're adopted into that family. And again, it's just so beautiful when we see that Abraham got this, and that Abraham was always generous. Um, we looked at Genesis 12. In Genesis 14, so two chapters later, he uh, faces a situation where his nephew Lot has been taken captive in a battle. There's been four kings that came in, four city-states that came in and attacked where Lot lived, and they, they won the battle. They took his nephew and all the plunder away. Well, Abraham gets his 318 men uh, to, to, and, and goes to attack these four kings and somehow wins that battle. And it says as he's coming back with his nephew and all the plunder that he meets this character Melchizedek, the king of Salem and the priest of God Most High. And he gives a tenth. He tithes right then and there of all this plunder that is rightfully his at this point. And then not only does he just tithe and give a tenth to this priest of God Most High, but then he gives the other 90% away. And, and he says, just except for what my men have eaten, you guys take your stuff back. And I just, I just love that, again, he gets that he's been blessed to be a blessing. He hasn't been blessed so that he can hoard things. He's been blessed to be a blessing. So that um, Hebrews 7 is another great, if you want to write that down, that uh, talks more about Abraham and Melchizedek and what happened there. So that brings us back to the beginning of Imago Dei. This foundational reality that we were created in the image of God and that we're made to reflect God's character. This means that we reflect a God who gives, a generous God. We probably all know John 3.16. And it starts, for God so loved the world that he gave, right? We serve a giving God. He gave everything. He gave himself and sacrificed himself for us. So when we reflect him, that should be a part of our lives as well. 
I just know that um, having been in the habit of, of giving, it helps to unlock that little knot of greed, that knot of selfishness, security, self-preservation. It helps to unlock that out of my life when I just make it a habit of giving, a discipline of giving. Um, it helps me remember that I'm just here to manage everything that, that God has given me. I'm just a manager. It's not mine. It's all God's. And he graciously lets us live on 90% and give 10%, right? And the other thing I did not touch on is that you'll often see tithes and offerings tied together. So uh, I don't want to lock us into, I, I agree with the, the preachers that said we are under grace. We could give 20%, 30%. It's not limited to 10%. There are tithes and, and you can give above and beyond. Um, I think I can invite the worship team back up and I have one last point to close this. Um, the New Testament does not specifically state that Christians should tithe. If you look for that, it really, it does not say that, and I want to acknowledge that. Um, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 9-7, states it really well when he says, Let each one give as he has decided in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So even though I am making a persuasive argument from my perspective, I want you to listen to God, and I want you to give what you think God should uh, have you give. So don't listen to me on that account. Remember, we are telling a story to the world around us, and generosity in whatever fashion that God asks us to give is a reflection, a proper reflection, that we serve a generous God. So thank you so much for your attention. Uh, let's, I want to close in prayer. God, we just ask that you would help us to tell the right story, that we would be better reflectors of you, that you would clean our mirrors, that you would angle them, that you would straighten them, God, that we wouldn't met, misrepresent you to the world around us. Thank you for your patience as you transform us and change us. Thank you for your love, and thank you, God, for your gift of Jesus who has come to sacrifice himself that we can, so we can be right with you, God. We just love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.